if you're really looking deeply at leisure, leisure, you know, as we learned really from Plato and Aristotle, is a state of mind. So leisure is a state of mind means that if we get to the essence of leisure, there's a state of mind that is essentially one of freedom, where is freedom from stress or freedom to love, freedom to joy, freedom to happiness, or it's freedom from something that we want to escape. But either way you look at it, there's an essential element of freedom. And in particular, it's the freedom of the mind. This is Nick Kemp with the Ikigai Podcast. Japanese wisdom for a fulfilling and meaningful life. Find your Ikigai at ikigaitribe.com. This is Nick Kemp of the Ikigai Podcast, and this is episode 33, Transformative Leisure and Play, Bringing Forth Our Reason for Being. And today I'm very excited to have a special guest on this episode, Dr. Susie Ross. And Dr. Susie Ross is the coordinator of recreational therapy at San Jose State University in California. Her primary research examines the underlying archetypal pattern of personal transformation and is the subject of her book, The Map to Wholeness, Real Life Stories of Crisis, Change and Reinvention. Dr. Ross has numerous published articles in peer-reviewed scholarly journals and has spoken to participants of diverse conferences in local, regional and international venues. In partnership with Indigenous Elders, Dr. Ross leads study abroad to ancient science for healing through sacred play. And Susie lives close to the ocean and loves to be immersed in nature, as do I. As an assistant professor of recreational therapy, Susie is known as a trusted, compassionate thought leader of transformation and play as medicine. Susie, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast. Thank you for having me. So we've had a few chats already and we've got to know each other. So I'm really excited to have you here. And there are so many things about you. And I was thinking, where do I start? So I thought I'd start with one of your roles or your occupation as a recreational therapist. So what do recreational therapists do? So you might have heard there with the um, bio that you just gave, which was very nice. Thank you. And thank you for having me here again. Yes, I've been listening to your podcast and really enjoying it and looking forward to our conversation (laughs) today. So uh, I get to be the lucky uh, conversant with you. So recreation therapy, I like to think of it as play as medicine. And so what I mean by that is that a recreation therapist works with people in hospital settings, community settings, nonprofits, for-profits, therapeutic camps, even in the prison settings, veterans, hospitals. And our task is to help people to heal body, mind, spirit by using play experiences. So play experience would be anything that you would do during your quote-unquote free time. So if you like to garden or ride your bicycle or cook or clean even, maybe you have a hobby or you like sports, 
anything that you would like doing in your free time that you authentically enjoy, we're banking on that enjoyment, that natural joy that arises when you're playing, when you're having fun, when you're picnicking, when you're being with yourself in, or others and your friends and family in ways that just make your heart happy, that makes you smile. Those are the types of things that inherently have healing that comes with joy and relatedness. And so we utilize those experiences and connect those together so that people can heal. It's really interesting because I was talking about this on another podcast and I gave an example of my son and I, and my son's almost 18 and he's just finished school. So he's gone through this stressful period of studying and and then doing his final exams. And through the last couple of months, we've inadvertently, we developed this game of throwing a, a toy bird that's for our cat to each other. And then it sort of evolved into this reckless, <laughs> boyish, almost brotherly fighting where we try and hit each other with the bird and you know, throw it as hard as we can, but we're really just playing catch. Uh, much to the horror of my wife, who's worried we're going to smash um, <laughs> some pottery or destroy um, photos or anything that's um, up in the kitchen and in the lounge room. But the the sense of fun and enjoyment from just throwing this toy at each other really reduces, um, I think, stress for both him and me. And it is a way for us to sort of playfully connect. So I see... Yeah, you, how you defined it, that it can be anything that just fills you with joy really resonates with me. And so if we look at, we're going to look at some of your work, but you seem to write about two themes. One is leisure and the other is play. And I'm, I'm wondering if there's a clear definition between the two or if they overlap mm-hmm. or would some people consider them the same? I'm so happy you're asking because in order to talk about transformative leisure and play, we have to understand what is leisure and play. And in my world, in a leisure scholar's world and in a recreation professional's world, those two are very, very different. Recreation, leisure and play, all three. And my version of them are slightly different from the norm. My leisure. So I'll talk to you a little bit about leisure. Okay. So leisure can be three different things. Leisure can be an activity, mm-hmm. something that we do, like, you know, like the sports idea, um, playing catch of any kind, gardening, something that you do. So leisure is an activity. Like, well, what is leisure to you? Oh, leisure is, you know, picnicking. Leisure is hiking, you know. And so the focus is on the activity. And then for some people, if you say, oh, what is leisure? And they'll say, oh, it's time away from work. It's time off. It's time where I'm not focusing on anything stressful. So the focus of the mind is on the time. It's the time is different than work time. Yes. So there's a differentiation mm-hmm. from leisure and work type of thing, but time is the differentiator. But if you're really looking deeply at leisure, leisure, you know, as we learned really from Plato and Aristotle is a state of mind. Okay. So leisure as a state of mind means that if we get to the essence of leisure, there's a state of mind 
that is essentially one of freedom, where is freedom from stress Hmm. or freedom to love, freedom to joy, freedom to happiness, or it's freedom from something that we want to escape. But either way you look at it, there's an essential element of freedom. And in particular, it's the freedom of the mind. So when I teach this to my students, I say, you know, even if you are in the middle of work, you can be at leisure. Mm. And I ask them, am I at leisure right now or am I at work? Well, the longer we go in the conversation, it becomes very clear that even though I'm getting paid to teach you right now, I am at leisure. Why? Because my mind is free. My body, mind, spirit is free. I am not being held by obligation or even desire to get paid. Right now, I am free. I am in joy of exactly what I'm doing right now. And that is leisure. And therefore, leisure could be essentially any activity. Well, that makes sense to me. I mean, what I'm doing now, I don't see as work. I mean, it helps my business, but it is something I probably would consider and value as very meaningful, but it's it's almost like a form of intimacy. I get to have this intellectual and emotional connection to someone. And so in a way, it is also a form of leisure. I really enjoy interviewing people and, and studying their work. So I, I'm wondering with the idea of freedom, if, if it's more like a sense of freedom in the confines of work or your daily life, we do have all these restrictions, but we can find some form of freedom or a sense of freedom in our mind if we just look at things as an opportunity to, I guess, express um, freedom as a leisure. And I'm now saying leisure in American accent. We say leisure. So. Yes. I'm so sorry. I'm saying the leisure instead of leisure. Yeah. Yeah. So. I mean, I guess my question is, it's almost like a a choice or a state of mind to think I have a sense of freedom or I have a sense of fun and play in the work that I do. And I don't need to be focused on getting paid or thinking that I'm working. Mm -hmm. For leisure, I think a core piece of leisure, which isn't talked about in literature very much, but for me, is that there's a falling in love. Okay. When there's a falling in love, with whatever it is that you're engaged in. And it's not this sort of forceful cognitive, you know, restructuring where it's like, okay, I need to restructure my mind to be this so that it's a state of mind of freedom. And whereas what I do with my students is I say, start by saying what's good about now. And with what's good about now starts orienting us to what it is in this experience that I could begin to feel happy about that I feel good about. And that starts orienting the mind toward the good. And then as you enter into the good, you can start to fall in love. And when we fall in love, then for sure, we're entering into a state of mind where there is no efforting. Mm. It's then we're at leisure. And, you know, and I talk about Viktor Frankl in who was in the concentration cramps in Germany. And he was seminal in understanding the meaning out of life. And as you, I'm sure know, he was able to engage in that state of mind, the state of mind where he was free, even though he was in the most horrific place ever. Mm. 
Mm. He was still free because his mind was free. He was actually in a state of leisure in my view. I see. Yeah, he described that as the last of the human freedoms, didn't he? We can always decide how to think about things or process things. But there also seems to be this uh, spontaneity or that, that these things that we fall in love with, as you term it, would probably be spontaneous. We wouldn't, yeah, we wouldn't think about them too deeply. We'd just fall into them or fall in love with them. And maybe that's how something like uh, bird throwing with my son <laughs> happened out of just some random thought to pick it up and, and throw it at him. And now it's this regular um, form of play we engage in. I would actually say that the story of your son is really a great example of play. You even use the word play. And so there's a way that that we know this is what play is. Mm. You know what I mean? And play is, for me, and this is where I deviate from the literature, which I need to write about more, is play is a state of being. Yes, okay. So a state of leisure is going to be a little bit more masculine. It's cerebral. It's in your mind. It's Western as a sort of state of being, okay. in, in my view, non-Western, because it's, it's focusing on the beingness, it emerges from the body, whereas leisure emerges from the mind. Mind, I see. So the state of being, you're in the living room, wherever you were, with your son, kind of lounging, there's already spaciousness, and then some sort of playfulness, this creative idea comes through one of you, this impulse. Mm. See, the other thing is play is based in the body so that it comes out as an impulse. Oh, look at that fun thing. And we're kind of doing nothing and it's making me feel playful, this impulse. And you start throwing it around. The thing you're throwing around is, is also not a ball. There's something more playful about it. It's kind of got these other characteristics. So that adds to the creativity and the playfulness, really. And so there's spontaneousness, spontaneity that's mm. integral to play. And there's also the unknown with play. You're navigating an unknown. You don't know when it's going to end. You don't know what's going to happen next. You're playing with ambiguity, okay? But you're playing with ambiguity with your body and your heart. Whereas in leisure, you're playing with ambiguity with your mind, and so it gives you a little distinctions there. Yeah, you've really articulated what we do, that it is spontaneous, it's random, we don't know when it's going to end, and it, it seems to come out of nowhere. And, yeah, it's not a ball, it is this soft toy. And So, yeah, that's, I think you've really articulated this difference between leisure and play. And I'd like to touch on how it was probably through the theme of leisure that I was able to stumble upon your work. So I'll mention that now I found you through a chapter of a, a book you contributed to that was um, co-edited by one of my regular podcast guests, Shintaro Kono. So Dr. Shintaro Kono, he's been on my podcast three times and he studies leisure and ikigai. And the book is titled Positive Sociology of Leisure, Contemporary Perspectives. And I believe the book was published in 2020, and your chapter was Transformative Leisure and Play, Bringing Forth Our Reason for Being. And I think I was looking for a play connection to Ikigai, 
And that's how I stumbled upon the book. And then I realized, oh, wow, Shintaro Kono, he's co-edited this book. And then I found your chapter and thought, ah, oh, well, I've got to get the book. So I got the book and then I, I reached out to you. So how did this opportunity to contribute to the book come about? Uh, well, I was so fortunate. My department chair, his name is Dr. Yoshi Iwasaki. He's born and raised in Japan and moved to the United States, still has family in Japan. And uh, he approached me because he knew my research was in transformation. Major line of his research is on meaning making. And he said, well, maybe one day we can do a piece together. You know, there seems to be some way that we have interconnectedness. Mm-hmm. And then uh, he got an email from Dr. Shen and an invitation to submit a chapter to his book, Book of Sociology of Leisure. And uh, that's when Dr. Iwasaki approached me and said, hey, what if we do this? <laughs> you know, and I said, yes, please. I would love this so much. And so then he ended up inviting two other colleagues as well, Dr. Joshua Bauer, as well as his colleague, uh, Paul Heinzman. And so the four of us got brought our minds together and imagined this chapter really with Dr. Iwasaki's um, invitation that it be really about transformation and that I would be the lead as far as kind of having a vision for the chapter. And so that's how, kind of how it went together. And it just, I was so pleased at how it came together. Awesome. I, I really enjoyed it. The chapter. I haven't read the whole book. I specifically got the book for your chapter, actually, because it ties into a concept similar to or very similar to Ikigai or that comes under the umbrella of Ikigai. And that is something called a Sobigai. And we could define that as play that makes our life worth living. And so a Sobu is the verb for play in Japanese. And so a Sobigai means play or playful activities that make our life worth living, which really does come under the Ikigai concept. I haven't really studied play in depth, but I I have read a little bit about it and how it is extremely important for um, development and it's obviously important for the individual and society. So why, why is it that something so important is almost dismissed as something children should do and that in between teenagehood and adulthood, we kind of dismiss it and think it's not as important as, let's say, working. So maybe two questions. Why is playing important and then why is it dismissed as not that important once we get older? Hey there, Nick Kemp here, and I wanted to touch base and let you know about my new course, the Find Your Ikigai course. Developed in consultation with Japan's leading Ikigai researchers, the Find Your Ikigai course is the only culturally accurate and evidence-based practical guide to the Ikigai concept. If you are interested in learning more about the Find Your Ikigai course, please visit ikigaitribe.com. Now back to the episode. I think I'll, if it's okay with you, I'll answer by answering the second question first. Sure. Why is it has been dismissed? And in that answering, I think that we're going to get more 
insight into that. Why has it have been dismissed? My personal analysis is that uh, two main reasons. The first reason, in my view, is that um, the world is dominated by Western ways of doing and thinking and being. And Western ways of doing, thinking, and being are dominated by the masculine and dominated by whiteness and dominated by um, the mind, privileging the mind. And when we privilege and we privilege progress, you know, we're privileging outcomes and production and money. And when we put all that together, as far as that which is privileged and that which gets money and that which gets attention, those are all things that are the opposite of play. Play is something that is what you do after work. Play is something for children. Play is not productive in all those different Mm. layers. And also the Christianization of the world as well. And Christianity, of course, like everything, has all of its beauty and importance. And also, as a part of that, there's been a Protestant work ethic that has emerged out of religion as far as influencing dominant culture, as far as privileging work and not play. And so there's all these ways that dominant cultures have conditioned us to mm-hmm. not really appreciate the richness and the integral nature of play to a full life. So there's that first piece. And then the deeper piece is that I really view play as something that's feminine. Okay. And so then we can, you know, just understand that right now we're definitely writing ourselves as a world, I hope, um, coming out of, you know, eons of patriarchy, but we're still not there yet. And so something that is feminine is going to be more in the underworld and something that is less aware. So that gives you a little bit, I, I could say more, but I'll stop with that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Now, I appreciate that perspective because I was actually reading something the other day about the difference between the indigenous religion of Japan, Shinto, Shintoism, and Christianity in relation to nature. And so man, I guess, who believe in the Christian God, sees God above man and then sees themselves as above nature and hence they have had this relationship where they see nature as a resource. Around Japan before Western influence, they had a very strong connection with nature, believing that gods or spirits were nature or were expressions of nature. As a result, they had far more respect and had far more harmonious uh, relationships with nature. And so it is interesting how culture and how we perceive our position in relation to certain things ends up influencing our environment, um, sometimes to its detriment. So it is fascinating how cultural perceptions have this big influence on how we play or how we perceive our environment and how we treat it. And obviously play is one of these areas and we'll touch on something you've studied, sacred play, which I believe is um, specific to certain cultures. But one thing you've touched on, which is very important in relation to the Ikigai concept, is transformation. And you write about 
play being a way for us to transform ourselves. But I think we need to define transformation. So how would you define uh, transformation? Okay. So yeah, defining transformation is no small thing, right? Um, I feel like I've been working on defining transformation for about a decade. And um, I'm actually just in the final touches of finally writing an article where I'm operationally defining it. And so I'm hoping to publish it next year. But I did a concept analysis, it's called um, transformation to be able to, I analyzed about 15 different disciplines, uh, probably more actually, because transformation, you know, is in, in almost every discipline because transformation is a phenomenon of the universe. So of course, all these different various diverse disciplines have their angle about transformation. So, you know, what the heck is it? And um, I think that right now, getting it down to its very essence, Mm -hmm. that transformation is about two main things. Uh, To get, I'll get very technical here. Okay. The first part is, is it's about autopoiesis. And autopoiesis is the process of an entity recreating itself. Nice. So, uh, yes, it's a very amazing phenomena. And so we are entities that recreate ourselves. And then um, the other major part of transformation is about structure building. So if you think about it, when we transform, if you think about the quintessential example of transformation as a butterfly, you got to go from a caterpillar to a butterfly, two entirely different beings. Mm. And, and that's what transformation is, right? It really is. It isn't just feeling different. It's not an aha moment. It's not just like, wow, I've had this really unbelievable experience, whether it was really wonderful or awful. And now I'm a different person. It's so much more of a longer process than that. And in order to bring us to become an entirely different human being. And so what transformation requires is that our structure rearranges and that we come out with a new structure. So what's a human structure? A human structures are a different study that I did identified that we have three human structures that transform. One is the ego. One is the mind. And one is the body. And they go in that order. That our first transformation in life is transforming our ego. The second transformation is our mind. And the third transformation is our body. If we're lucky, many of us, you know, might not have that many transformations in one lifetime. (laughs) But if we're lucky, we do. And uh, so there's that. I say this transformation is a theme I've looked at in Ikigai, and it relates specifically to someone I'll, I'll touch on in a minute, but there's something I'd love to quote from your chapter in relation to transformative leisure and play. And you write, play and leisure are integral to transformation because it unfolds through moments of experience, some of which are extraordinary, others might be deemed important and many viewed as mundane. Regardless of the importance assigned by the individual, living life experientially is tantamount of transformation. And when I read this, I thought, ah, this is fantastic because Ikigai is experiential too. You have these life experiences, you make meaning of them. But what's interesting is 
the mother of Ikigai, this amazing woman, Miyako Kamiya, who wrote the seminal book called Ikigai Nitsuite, which would translate to about Ikigai. She wrote about transformational experiences and how the, the triggers for them can happen in the midst of our day-to-day living. So I guess in the mundane. And maybe the problem is that we're so distracted. We're not being in the present that we miss them, but these triggers allow for transformation, which in turn might provide us with new reasons for living. So obviously play can do that for us. And so I guess my question is how can play or leisure transform our lives? (laughs) I know that's not an easy question. Uh Or would you like to expand on your quote? Yeah. Yeah, I think a core piece of understanding this sort of line of thinking is that you honed into experiences. You know, in that quote, I'm talking about experiences are the key. And you're saying, yeah, ikigai happens through experiences. Well, you could listen to that sentence in one level and say, well, that's totally strange because all of life is an experience. What are you talking about? Like, you're not saying anything profound because everything is about experiencing. While you're mm-hmm. alive, you're having experience. Or you're dead, you're dead. But that's not quite. And so the distinction I want to make is that when we say, when I say experiences in that sentence, what I'm talking about is the difference between being a spectator and having an experience. Yes. So anytime we're spectating, watching TV, watching a sport, watching other people play, when we're being a spectator, we're not really fully having an experience. Also, when we're abstracting with our minds, we're being super abstract. It depends on what's happening there, but that could enter into where we're not quite in the experience. So another way to think about it is when our whole body, mind, spirit is engaged actively, then we're in an experience. And as soon as you're in an experience, you are propelling Mm -hmm. forward in your transformation. Because transformation is happening 24-7 throughout our life because it's a function of the universe. So because we're a part of the universe, we are always in this process of transformation. But when we are experiencing something, especially if we're feeling our feelings, our emotions, then we're actually propelling ourselves forward and we're allowing ourselves to move forward through this flowing outward of transformation, whereas if we're spectating or whatnot, we're definitely kind of putting a dam in the river and slowing things down. Wow, that that idea of propelling forward really connects to Ikigai because Ikigai could be defined as the activities or experiences in your life that make you feel your life is moving forward, so which ties into maybe themes of growth and, and change and transformation. You're touching on this idea of almost like, it's almost like knowledge. If we accumulate knowledge, It can be helpful, but it really doesn't mean anything until we we do something with that knowledge, we action it, or we experience life through using that knowledge. So that idea of either being the observer or someone who's actually experiencing the the experience, Mm -hmm. (laughs) for lack of a better phrase, definitely makes sense and then i guess from these experiences we can 
we can make meaning, we can process these life events. And that's something you write about. You write about three activities that when woven explicitly and mindfully into leisure can contribute to transformation. So would you like to touch on those uh, three activities? And one is um, meaning making. Mm -hmm. So when we're going through the process of transformation, we can use our mind to be able to raise awareness and consciousness. We can use our mind to be able to savor and to elevate our emotional connection and our emotive experience, how much an experience touches us. We can use our mind by savoring and reflecting, by appreciating, and that elevates the emotional engagement, which helps us to feel even more into who am I? And when we feel our emotions like that, when we can savor the experience, we're really savoring ourselves, mm. you know? And that is something that is healing and also joyful. And it propels us towards our own becoming. It helps us lean forward into our becoming. And our mind can be a wonderful tool to be able to understand why did something happen? Why did something really a difficult time happen to me in those years? And our mindfulness about it, our reflection on it can help us to be able to make sense of it and make meaning of it in a larger context that causes healing, that causes increased consciousness, increased self-awareness, which contributes to our self-becoming because transformation is about becoming. It's about becoming a new you, the you that you are destined to become. And so the meaning making can propel you towards that in a, in a more conscious and emotionally connected way. Nature itself is presence. It is pure presence. And so being in nature helps us to become present with ourselves and helps us to become present. And then there's a stillness there. There's a quietness there. There's beauty that's so accessible and it reflects who we are, just beautiful and quiet and spacious on the inside and harmonious. And so we get to have so much healing and all of that contributes to our own becoming. And then finally, spirituality in the most widest way of understanding it is meaning making. Mm. Okay. You know, uh, if you're atheist, a person who's atheist, you know, spirituality could be translated into meaning making what's meaningful to you. Um, but other sort of spiritual ways of looking at things is being able to understand what do you believe in? What is love? Is there something larger than me that's happening that I'm a part of? And engaging in those big picture questions and those feelings of something larger than ourselves opening ourselves to larger than ourselves and deeper than ourselves, that opens us to our own becoming. Those three areas, meaning-making, nature, recreation, and spirituality or spiritual practices, they've all been themes throughout my study of Ikigai. So it's all, it's all tying in and making sense to me. Shintaro Kono, he has a theory called life directionality. It's called Hokosei where he does talk about past, present linkages and how you can make meaning of certain 
past experiences, but have this almost open mind to it. You're not looking to make too much of a specific connection. So that that's interesting. And then this idea of nature has become really important to me the last couple of years of, of seeing nature as something I need to go back and reconnect to like almost daily. And so I practice something called Shinrin Yoku, which is forest bathing. And almost every day now I go to a, a park which has a lot of uh, Australia f- flora and fauna. And once I walk into this park, it feels like I'm walking into a national park. So once I step in, within about 10 spaces, all the houses around me are obscured by all these big trees and the temperature changes and the sounds change and the smell and you hear all these birds and it really does um, change my state and I, I feel calmer and I'll, when I go there, I make sure I, I don't take my phone. I, I make sure I'm not listening to anything and I'll actually walk almost as slowly as I can. Even if we have positive stress, I guess it still has some impact on you and you, you need to ground yourself and get centered. And I think nature is probably the best way to do that. And then this idea of spirituality, I'd probably consider myself maybe an atheist, but when I think about Ikigai and maybe especially when I go out to nature, I do contemplate life and the bigger questions and think, what is the meaning of life and how can I make the most of life? And I I do that with this calmness and, yeah, I, I think these three areas are definitely worth spending more time with, and not just from a scholarly educational perspective where you're reading about it. It's something you need to, to practice probably every day. And I'm just looking at recreation and it's really recreation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that sort of ties into this theme of transformation. And so the spiritual one, I think, might might be the hardest for some people to process because of the perception that um, it has to relate to religion. But it sounds like it doesn't have to. And there's actually another quote um, that you cite in your paper, and I might read, a high level of faith, hope, and contentment in relation to a well-defined worldview or belief system that provides a sense of meaning and purpose to existence in general and that offers an ethical path to personal fulfillment, which includes connectedness with self, others, and a higher power or larger reality. So that seems like a really good definition of spiritual well-being that you reference. So I like this idea we can be spiritual, but it doesn't have to be tied into any specific um, religion. And so that obviously ties into transformation but also play. And this is an area you've studied and you actually wrote a paper titled um, Sacred Play, an Ancient Contribution to Contemporary Play Theory. So would you like to touch on what sacred play is and where its roots are and why it's important and maybe why we would want to consider play as something sacred? Mm. Okay, so, yeah, well, I mean, this is definitely uh, extreme. Um, I wrote this article, it published last year, and I really am excited about it because 
I've been wanting to write it since 2007 when I was in Peru and I was in a car driving with this uh, woman who's written books. She's a leader of Inca mysticism and like the ancient practices of the Inca of the Peru area, okay. uh, the Andes. And um, I was learning all these practices of, that have been passed down from the Inca lineage and working with the elders who are of this lineage. And they're teaching us these how to use your mind to imagine energy that have these healing practices using your mind and imagination. And that's what they've been doing right forever. And I said, okay, well, what do you call these exercises? You know, what's the word for it? And they said, puklii. And I was like, well, what does that mean directly translated? And then they said, sacred play. (laughs) And when they said that, I just thought I was going to, just faint because <laughs> I just felt like this is the most important thing I could ever hear. Mm-hmm. And then I've been a student of Puglii, you know, for over a decade and learning from the elders. And, uh, you know, the essence of what the Inca did is that they played together. And the purpose of their play was basically enlightenment. And the play practices are designed to help you to heal yourself heal your ancestors and get into a place of so much clarity of mind, body, and spirit that you achieve an enlightenment state. And they had seven levels of consciousness and highly sophisticated and all through play. So the idea with sacred play to be concrete about it is that, you know, and it's not just play right with yourself. So I could imagine above my head, um, for example, uh, an opening above my head, a bubble around my body, and then energy, physically light energy coming through the top of my head, cascading like water through my body, cleansing my body, and then releasing out the base of this bubble into the earth. And it's cleansing out my literally heavy energy. And so that's a sacred play. That's one of their wow. play things that they do. And then That's something I could do. Like even right now, I could just decide and intend, oh, right now I'm going to have energy running through my body like a little waterfall right while we're talking. And I just can intend it. And then it could be happening supposedly, who knows? And and there we have it. And they say, even with that alone, you could become enlightened just from that type of play. But then they have types of play where it's like we play together. Like there could be a whole group or you and me, and then we could do certain things with our, Mm. you know, and then help each other to become clear and harmonious and whatever. So anyway, it's just a lot of fun, but um, that gives like a little synopsis. Isn't it fascinating when you stumble upon a culture where they have one word that encapsulates something that's so broad and significant and meaningful, but also personal to you. So obviously play has been a big part of your life and very important. So I can't imagine, I can actually imagine you once you heard that word, (laughs) it would have just lifted your spirits and you would have been so astounded, like, wow, you have a word to encapsulate everything I I care about and then I've studied. And it, it almost sounds like it encompasses, I mean, what you described before where you open up your head and you allow this light to bathe you. It almost sounds like a a meditative practice. So it's interesting how other cultures can take something or have something similar 
but it's far more broader and, and there's maybe this spiritual connection or far more deeper meaning to it. But yet they have one word they probably use casually to describe it. And that's, I think I had the same experience with Ikigai once I was introduced to the word. I was like astounded. Well, you have a, a word that encapsulates uh, the things in life that make it worth living and, and why you, you battle on through life. So it is fascinating when we do take the time to learn about other cultures and sometimes just one word can be enough to change our lives. So I'll link to that paper and people can download it and read it if they're interested. One thing I haven't asked you is how do you play? What what play is meaningful for you? Um, There's a type of play called serious leisure. It's a leisure but it, you know, could be serious play if we're getting technical about it, but it's called Serious Leisure by Robert Stebbins. And when you have a serious leisure, your serious leisure is, is Ikigai, in my view, you know? I see. And so when you have a serious play, it's a leisure. It's something that you fall in love with and that it's very complex. It requires lots of learning. It requires sacrifice. Um, it has a whole culture to it. You know, there's all sorts of these sorts of criteria that create it. But, you know, a simple way to say it is it's a hobby. Um, anyone who has a very elaborate hobby they're dedicated to, and it is almost like a side job, but not, um, that could be something that's like serious leisure. And so for me, my serious leisure has always been my spiritual growth and personal growth and learning everything I can possibly about spirituality and spiritual practices and, and philosophies and all of that. Like that's my serious leisure. I just love it. I love reading about it. I have tons and tons of books about it and I like talking about it and contemplating. And Mm -hmm. even when I'm like half awake and half asleep, I'm like doing this contemplation thing about, (laughs) you know, like, like I'm contemplating even more and I, I go on retreats and it's my favorite pastime. Uh, It's a serious leisure and it's not the same as, you know, playing golf or whatever. Um, You know, I do like cycling for like recreation Mm. and also taking walks by the ocean. I love the ocean. But one of the other things I do is I go up and down these stairs almost every day. So there's these stairs near my house and I jog to the stairs. I go up and down the stairs for 20 minutes Wow! and then I jog home. Nice. (laughs) Yeah. So, uh, and then when I'm doing the stairs, I don't announce this, but I am now, I guess, is while I'm going up and down the stairs, I do those um, apuklii. I do okay. an elaborate um, energy practice while I'm going up and down the stairs. And that like changes my entire day. And if I don't do it, I feel off. Actually, I would say my absolute favorite thing in the world is going up and down those stairs. Wow. Sounds like um, one of your guy. And mm-hmm. I actually now crave, my body craves me to go forest bathing. Like there'll be a certain time of day when my body's just, my intuition saying, go, go outside. So I'm, I'm sure you you have that, but it seems like it's a daily practice for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, serious leisure is, is something Shin also mentioned to me as well. And I think it's something we should, <laughs> pardon the pun, 
take more seriously. (laughs) (laughs) Right, exactly. So, Susie, we've touched on all these themes of play, serious leisure, transformation, uh, spirituality, nature, meaning-making. So how would you like to end the podcast interview? What would you like to finally share? I would say that... um... Hopefully, uh, through I think that you know a lot as we have talked, start to get this sort of idea about leisure and play. We're giving these examples in our lives of different play that we have, different leisure that we have, different serious leisure that we have, and how much that play and leisure gives to us. And in fact, it's during play and leisure that we live. So like, if we just take a moment there and like, look at that, if leisure is a state of mind that could happen while we're working or while we're at play. And if play is something that happens (laughs) right now with my puppy, you know, and my puppy is like, you know, wanting to play. play, (laughs) Right. And it's like, okay, so playing with a puppy and all those types of things when we're engaging in play um, and that can happen at work. Playfulness could happen at work. Playfulness can happen during non-work, but it's during those moments. It's moment of play, just like capturing that, right? Like imagine I'm playing with my dog. Everything else kind of disappears. I'm with my dog. We're playing, we're going, we're we're rolling around, kisses and, and whatnot. The ball is getting tossed. And in those experiences, we're fully alive right? In the middle of play and in the state of mind of leisure where we're having so much fun. We are engaged in something that we love, whether it's a moment during our job when you're like, I love this part of my job, or you're cooking in the kitchen and it's like, I'm having so much fun Fun. or Mm -hmm. wherever it is where it's like, I love this. That is the epitome of the moment where life is entirely alive and yes. full we're fully embodying it right that is play and leisure right it doesn't matter where you are right so if we start to understand play or leisure in this way then we can start to see go back to ikigai and say what makes life worth living do we need to just say more right it's what makes life worth living is when in my view of course i'm biased when we engage in leisure and play whether it's play that's mundane or play that has all this sacredness to it that's like, you know, in this other realm or something that's entirely different, you know. Uh, It could be an intimacy, you know. The play interchange that can happen between two people in sexual relation, you know, it's like that also is a, a play that's happening. And, of course, there's joy and ecstasy in that, hopefully. (laughs) <laughs> and, and it's like, you know, so in our ikigai, finding our ikigai, finding ikigai, is like uh, making life worth living. Well, what if we engage with leisure and play more thoughtfully, more mindfully, where we're understanding, oh, I'm going to play. I'm going to have leisure. I'm going to transform my work into leisure. And mm-hmm. so that then I have you know, this aliveness in me of love and meaning. No, I mean, it, it really 
reminds me of someone describing it here, guys, just the feeling of being alive and when we're fully engaged in the moment. So you you lose yourself to the moment and and then on reflection you realize, oh God, I had such a great time yesterday doing this and doing that. So yeah, I agree with you. When we lose ourselves and we're fully engaged in something that's playful or intimate, it's it is meaningful. The other things we tend to reflect on, and it's not these um, external, extrinsically motivated things that we focus on that make our life worth living. It's these intrinsic, personal, intimate, playful activities where we lose ourselves for maybe minutes or hours mm-hmm. that seem to really matter. And I guess if we can make our work or not be unrealistic to sort of say make all of your work (laughs) playful but if we can make a good chunk of it playful or almost a form of leisure or leisure we probably should strive to do so I think that's our place to begin you know is to be able I see it as transforming moments into leisure and play and when when we can get to that state of freedom what do I love about this moment Mm. what what can I fall in love with this moment. What is good about now? Yeah. And taking, like, I hated my job. This one job I had, I hated it. I was like, oh my gosh, I, I, I don't want this job. And then I just decided what's good about this job. And every day I would say, what's good about this job. And I would start answering my own question slowly, slowly starting to find what's good about this job. What's good about this job until I fell in love with my job. I transformed the job and not because I'm something special or great. It's just by answering that question, what's good about it. And then transforming it transformed into actually I fell in love with it. And so I learned by that process that I cried when I left that job. And uh, is, is there's always something good about now. Victor Frankl taught us that there's always something good about now. And then we can transform it into leisure, into a leisure state of mind. But then it's more than just moments, right? And as we learn from Ikigai, it's not these moments of immersion. It's, it's something even deeper than that. And I think that as we transform, when we go through a full transformation or two in one lifetime, you get to plant chance to reside in the self where yourself is here in present here. And once you have more access to my own the self that has become an embodied, even those moments, it's about a way of a state of being Mm. that is, is consistent throughout moments. It pervades moments. It is your presence, your presence of your own being is what we're looking for, you know, as far as the causes, a level of consistency in across moments in our life that allows for a sense of harmoniousness, regardless of what's happening outside. And life itself is this more softer, gentler play and state of mind together. I mean, it it almost sounds like you're saying it's really just true expression of yourself that's where we're getting at we we become our true selves and through these activities we can express ourselves fully and comfortably and and 
seems to also tie back to values, you know, what we we value and can we freely express our values and, and get closer to our true self, which is also another um, <laughs> another area of conversation. But I'd like to end with a quote that is your email signature from someone you're quoting. And I was amazed at this quote when I read it, and it is, play is the only way the highest intelligence of humankind can unfold by, is it Joseph Chilton Pierce? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I was like, wow, that is so true. It is an intelligence and clearly we need to play more. Yeah, would you like to touch on that quote? Yes, I think it's our destiny as humans to be able to know how to play. You know, I mean, what a a great scholar a hundred years ago said, you know, the the mark of a great civilization is, is whether or not they can handle their leisure and play. And it sounds so simple, right? Like, of course, I know how to do that, you know, and why is that so important? But during the pandemic, the best demonstration of this, Mm. because all of us had to, in the whole world, pretty much into lockdown, all of us at home with spaciousness of more time and less movement. And so then what happens? What do we learn about play during that? And its significance in our life. And I'm not sure if I'm taking us on a tangent or not. I mean, I relate to that. I mean, I think the pandemic obviously restricted our freedom and then all these things that we maybe took for granted and maybe we would identify as our ikigai sources, our relationships, the freedom to go and have dinner, to have a coffee, to go outside and play. Yeah, we all lost that freedom. And some people struggled a lot still are struggling while other people could find different ways to to maybe play in the confines of the pandemic. So that probably is a valid point that a country that can (laughs) knows how to handle their play despite what's going on is an indication maybe of a healthy society and a healthy people. Yeah, obviously play is really important and it's it's kind of sad it's something we consider we can only do once we've finished work or once we have enough time and money which probably should be (laughs) higher up in priority in terms of maybe play is the first thing we should do in the morning because if, if we did that we'd probably feel engaged and happy and ready to take on the day where we we tend to put it off to the weekends um I think I can also answer your question in a different way. Um, I'm working on an article. I don't know when I'm going to finish this one. I hope I'll finish it next year. It's like a progression. That's what it is, a progression of leisure and play. And it's really building off a work of that was started 100 years ago where it's type of play that hurts others. Okay. Violence and things that hurt. If there's a progression, right, of from the violence to something where you're more engaged. We talked about something where you're actively engaged, but what's beyond that creativity that you're creatively engaged, like art and music and Mm. writing and poetry and where, where you're making a garden and 
building a house. So you're using your creative mind to create. That's another level of play, yes. um, a sophistication. But beyond that, there's even more engagement, such as something like the sacred play. When you're right now creating this podcast and we're having listeners learn and listen and engage in this dialogue, that's like a creative play, a serious mm. leisure, right? This is a creative play right now. So it's a very high level meaning you're using your whole being and you're producing something through your play that's making a difference, right? Then play can be, get even more sophisticated yeah. than that. And when we start imagining play that's even more sophisticated than what we're doing right now, that's what this guy is talking about. That's what Joseph Pierce is talking about. It's about play that can actually produce something that is beyond what we can imagine. That is the potential of play because at the center of play and leisure is freedom and joy and love. And when you have those, those are like... The things that are the most expansive aspects of being human, and you add that together into what are the outcomes of that together, that's what we're, we're talking about a frontier we don't even know about yet, really. Mm. Now, I mean, the quote does remind me, and what you've just said reminds me of something Kami Amirka wrote, sort of saying the way to self-actualize is through creative expression. And when you use your unique imagination to create something new, sort of becomes this emblem of who you are, but that's that's not ego-driven. It, it's just this expression of who you are. And so, yeah, using our unique imagination and being creative would seem to be sort of the, the highest form of play, I guess, of an individual. And I'm sure that would lead to another conversation, but we should mm-hmm. probably finish up. Mm-hmm. Your, your dog probably yes. wants to go out and play. Uh-huh. Where can people um, find you? And maybe if they're interested, they could read your book, The Map to Wholeness, Real Life Stories of Crisis, Change and Reinvention. So you do have a, a website. What's the, mm-hmm. the website? Sure. Thanks. Uh, the email, the website is um, suzyross.net. And I spell my name S-U-Z-Y-R-O-S-S dot net, N-E-T. And um, so you can pretty much find everything there. I have other podcasts there, um, links there. I have um, lots of videos there uh, that I made during the pandemic to help people through transformation. You can take a quiz to um, hopefully learn what phase of transformation you're in right now. And uh, some poetry up there, some art. There's some. There are some videos about each phase of transformation so you can learn more about the phase of transformation that you're in right now. And of course there are links to buy the book there. And then finally uh, there's services like consultations. If I offer 15 minutes free, uh, so you can sign up today for 15 minutes of free consult. Like what phase of transformation am I in, you know, and, uh, or I think I'm in this phase. Do you think that's correct? And, or you might have any sort of other questions Uh, I have 15 minutes free, and then if you wanted to do more than that, that's great. Awesome. I'll link to that. So I'll link to the the website and to the papers, and it's been a a real pleasure to to have you on, and I always wish I could have these uh, conversations in person, and I think one of my my goals next year is to 
travel the world and hopefully meet my podcast guests. So I'd definitely like to to do that. But thank you so much, Susie, for coming onto the podcast and for your time today. Mm-hmm. Thank you for playing with me, Nick. <laughs> yeah, woohoo! This is the best type of play. Awesome. Thank you. Okay. Take care. Bye. Bye bye. This episode was brought to you by the Find Your Ikigai course. Developed in consultation with Japan's leading Ikigai researchers, the Find Your Ikigai course is the only culturally accurate and evidence-based practical guide to the Ikigai concept. To learn more about the Find Your Ikigai course, please visit ikigaitribe.com.